Good morning, all you brave, hearty souls. Thank you for being here today. Uh, people that come out for snow days always warm a pastor's heart, and we appreciate you being here today. And it always, I always find uh, God seems to have a little bit of a special blessing, I think, uh, for what goes on on these days that so many seem to find it difficult to get here. What happens? The guys from Capilay, they drive in, and the guys from behind the church don't get here. It's kind of how it always happens. But thank you for being here, and uh, we had a great great early service, and we appreciate you being in here. And it's not as bad out there as it's kind of they thought right now anyway, so I'm sure we'll all be, be fine. We, uh, Janet and I had a couple of days, three days actually, went to Bangor this week for a little, little break and uh, some Christmas shopping and uh, down there to eat at uh, one of our favorite places. And uh, the theme, you know, this theme is Wonderland. I was in Wonderland down there. Uh, there's a new place called Harbor Freight. It's like Prince's Auto. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's Wonderland for me. Uh, but we were driving back. We had a great time and got some Christmas shopping done and just kind of thinking about the next few days and the, the celebrations that, that we're going to be a part of and, and uh, feeling a little guilty, I think, almost, because we have so many friends and family that are finding themselves in real difficult places this season of the year. That's always true, I know. But, uh, you know, the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, and I never really realized how much of your life, when you get involved with other people, how much of your life you're mourning, you're, you're kind of grieving over some reality, it, maybe it's not yours, it may be theirs, but uh, those burdens are heavy to carry, and I appreciate Pastor Jay's prayer this morning, just recognizing that, uh, that we do need to be praying for each other during this time, and maybe... Uh, that being said, maybe this particular passage this morning is, uh, is right on track, if, uh, kind of the, if that's kind of the way I'm feeling. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and uh, I hope you have your Bible. I know that when you get into preaching at Christmas time, people think, well, I know those verses. Got that story down pat, and they don't bring their books with them, but you should uh, always be advised, you, you can't open the Word of God without, you may have seen a passage 50 times, but be forewarned, there's always more there for you. And always something else that God's trying to, uh, to show you. The, this is familiar territory, though, this particular part of the Christmas account. We have uh, the main characters in the story. There are the three wise guys. There's one bad guy. And then all used guys, all the other guys that are a part of the deal. And uh, the story unfolds in Matthew chapter 2. It's actually not the beginning of Matthew's Christmas account. There's a few verses previous to that that focus on Joseph, but uh, the timing begins in chapter 2 by, by the words, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so we, we instantly are aware that there's been some time that's taken place here, and the implication of Matthew chapter 2 is that the wise men never stood at the manger, that uh, time has gone along here, <clears throat> and not that it makes any real difference, but your Christmas card's the picture on them is wrong because uh, the wise men and the shepherds were probably not there, were not there at the same time. I remember in high school English, they used to try to talk to us in writing class about a people starting a novel or a book or even a short story that the first sentence was important because in that sentence you had to reach out and grab the interest of the readers and it had to be something that, that kind of captivated their attention and was, you know, filled with kind of question and drama in it. And I think Matthew's first verse in chapter 2, man sure does that. When, in the, when you read that, 
it just sets the thing up so beautifully and fills you with so many questions about it. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here are these travelers coming in to the city. They have no idea what they're walking into. They, uh, they were magi, Matthew calls them. We call them the wise men, the three wise men. People would have complaints, you know, on their comment card if we put four wise men in the manger scene. But, uh, you know, we don't know how many there were. There could have been three. There could have been 30. Um, there's no mention of how many came. Of course, we know there were three types of gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And... Uh, so kind of we assume maybe there were three, but probably, probably more. Commentators and historians agree that the reference to the Magi indicates that they were astronomers, A, and probably not just astronomers, but astrologers as well. They were students of the stars, but they probably were people who also believed that the stars uh, controlled your destiny and spoke into your fate. They kind of mixed the two of those uh, those two together. And the word magi would make you even think of magic, and probably there was some of that thrown in too. These guys were learned uh, philosophers and students of life and the stars, sophisticated thinkers from the Far East, and they're on this mission. They had seen this unusual sign in the heaven. Hard to, for me to relate to that, but they, they, they were looking up enough to realize something was afoot here that was different. And that, and because of who they were and what they knew and what they enjoyed thinking about, that piqued something in them. They realized something different was afoot here, and so they began to explore. And they also knew that that there were prophecies related to Israel that a Messiah would be born, and they began to connect the dots. And so they were on a mission. It's unlikely that they slipped into town unnoticed. I mean, you see the three wise men, you think, you know, just kind of come in around the corner in the dark and, and uh, you know, tie up the camels and they're kind of wicking around town a little bit. But this, it probably was the opposite of that. This big caravan of these people that have been on this long mission. You talk about these guys going to South Africa and wherever for six months. I mean, these guys were loaded up and had all their, their people with them. And uh, it was no secret that they were coming into town and the question that they answered when they arrived stirred up a hornet's nest. They said this, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Matthew lets us know that the bad guy, Herod, and he was a bad guy, he ruled at the time, he took notice of the fact that these guys had arrived in town. Now to say Herod was bad would be an understatement. I mean, history records this guy... Well, for example, they say that when he first began to reign, he had the entire Jewish Sanhedrin executed, 17, 18, 20 people put to death in that, could be as many as 50, 60, 70 people in that group put to death. He later put, his, put to death his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, no jokes there on that one, his wife, three of his own kids. I mean, he just, he was putting together, putting to death people in his life that he was afraid would undermine his position. Caesar Augustus was reported to have once 
sarcastically commented that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. So this guy had a reputation. And no wonder the Bible says that not only was Herod disturbed, but all Jerusalem with him. And so, you know, when Herod's upset, everybody's upset. I mean, the fact that, that, that things were afoot and, and uh, trouble was stirring in the court of Herod meant that trouble was stirring for everyone because Herod was a butcher and he murdered young and old alike. And so we look into verse 4 of chapter 2 and it says that when he had called all, that's Herod, called all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And you see that they cough up the answer real quick. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I mean, they knew it. They, they knew the prophecy. They were able to quickly respond to him. And I, 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 for me, this is really an interesting aspect of this story. I was reading some stuff from a favorite author of mine, Mark Buchanan, who was talking about this whole <clears throat> reality, and he, he pointed out the fact that while a caravan of pagan astrologers traveled miles in search of the Messiah, looking for this clue, this mystery, the religious guys that are right there on the front porch of the action hadn't even taken time to notice what was going on, even though they, they knew all the details. And so I want to just give you... Th- three things that I find amazing in this story. And the first is this. It's amazing that God is capable of birthing a hunger for truth in people who have never been exposed to the message of Christ. And that's what was going on with the wise men. H.C. Wilson told a story here in this, in this uh, pulpit. I think almost a year ago, he preached right after Christmas. And he told the story of... Uh, of a missionary somewhere in the world. He had been to the Lausanne Conference in South Africa, I think is where he picked up this story. But he, he told the story of a missionary who was serving in a country where it was illegal to, to preach the gospel. And the guy was um, pulled into a garage to get some fuel. And at the garage, there's an armed guard standing there. And the, the missionary felt God prompt him, felt God was saying to him, you need to give a Bible to that man. And the missionary just kind of had this conflict in his spirit. He's pumping the fuel or whatever. He gets in the car, he drives away, and he says to his wife, I felt like God was telling me to give a Bible to that man. And they're driving off. And his wife, you know, did the wife thing. What are you, crazy? God tells you this and you didn't go do that? You know, turn this car around this minute. Go back there. And she, she basically convicts him again of the fact that God spoke to him and you didn't listen to God and we're driving away and he says, well, man, I, we could be put in prison. We could be killed for doing that. She said, doesn't matter. God told you to do that. So she convinces him to turn around. He drives back into the garage, gets out, goes up in fear and trembling to this armed guard and says, God told me to give this to you. And apparently the backstory that unfolded was that this guard, this in a Muslim country, I believe, had, had a dream, and the, in the dream he was told, if you will go to a certain place in the city today, which was that place, and be there, you will be given the truth. And God miraculously revealed himself to that guard. And that story is not uncommon for what appears to be happening around the world these days, especially in the Muslim world, with, with God supernaturally and miraculously making himself known to people who have not had an opportunity 
to hear the gospel in the same way we have. One of the stories that came out of the, and there are many stories out of the, the, uh, the work of the Jesus film, and if you're unaware of that, there's a, an old film about the story of salvation called the Jesus film, and it's been shown all around the world in little villages just on a, on a sheet hanging on a house with a projector, and there have been teams of missionaries that have taken that film all over the world. There have been literally millions of people that have come to Christ as a result of that film. One of the stories that came out of that was a, a, a village where there was a little boy who had tripped and fallen into a blazing fire, and he fell right into the flames, but he was not burned. And when, he, when, he, when they realized he was safe, he said to his father, where is that man who, who pulled me out of the flames? And the father said, what are you talking about? There was no man there. He, the little boy said, yes, there was. There was a man, a strange man, who pulled me out of the flames. And, the father said, and they looked for him. They couldn't find him. A few weeks later, the Jesus film rolls into that village. It's being shown. The little boy is sitting in his father's lap. And as, as the movie begins happening, the little boy jumps up and says to his dad, that's the man, there's the man who pulled me out of the flames. Amazing to me. We were driving to Bangor uh, on Thursday morning, and I was listening to the Christian radio station, the Bangor station, and uh, Focus on the Family was on there, and they, had a, they were interviewing a girl by the name of Sherry Rose Shepherd, and this girl was an individual who had been raised in Hollywood. Her, her father was a, a Jewish disc jockey in Hollywood. Her mother was a beauty queen. Both of her mother and father had been married and divorced three times. She had a uh, kind of a horrendous bringing up, a difficult childhood. In, in grade school, she was 60 pounds overweight, and they called her Sherry the Whale. She talked about all this abuse and bullying, and as it led to her becoming obsessive about her body, and she ended up becoming a, a beauty queen and winning all these pageants. And, and uh, I think, if I remember correctly, she won Mrs. America in, in the ni- early 90s or something, but she ends up having a casting company in, in, uh, in L.A. and dealing with all these successful people. She said, every night I would, be, I would be crying myself to sleep. She said, I was so hurting on the inside. And she said, I was out of town on business. I'm in a hotel. I have, my, I have a bottle full of sleeping pills. I'm planning to do myself in, to kill myself that night. And she said... I'm in this motel room. I'm crying. She said, I cried out to God. God, if you are real, please reveal yourself to me. And she said that out of nowhere, this image came to her of a boy back in junior high school who was the, high, the junior high drug dealer. And she said, his face came to me. And she said, I, I just started remembering that, that while at one point in my life I had bought drugs from him, he, he got religion. And she said, he came back to the high school and she, she said, I remembered him standing in the high school being ridiculed by the kids and giving out tracts. And he gave me a track about Jesus. And that just kind of came to her mind. She falls asleep, doesn't follow through, <clears throat> excuse me, with her plans. Next day, she gets up and goes to work. And her coworker, they're working out of town together. Her coworker says, Hey, let's go over to my grandmother's house tonight for supper. And so they go over there, come to find out the grandmother was a missionary in Albania. And the grandmother, and it's the first Christian household this girl had ever been in. The grandmother says, why, you know, dear, why are you staying in that hotel? Come, I've got spare bedrooms. You need to stay and spend the rest of the week with me. She comes back that night to stay. The grandmother comes up to her when it's bedtime. This is a grown woman. She says, dear, uh, how about if I tuck you into bed tonight and read you a Bible story? 
And, and the girl was testifying. She said, no one could have known miraculously. She said, when I heard those words, tuck you into bed and read you a Bible story, she said, with all that had gone on in my life, to think that 24 hours from the time I prayed, God, reveal yourself to me, that this was happening. And I, 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 I was actually, dry, Janet was, was actually driving, and I was, had my computer, and I was working on this message and, and thinking about this stuff, and then this comes on. I was just thinking, it's unbelievable. Never, never underestimate the power of God to reveal himself to people who may appear far, far from God. And we see God doing this to these pagan philosophers. He's drawing them. And remember, we believe there's only one way to God the Father. The Bible is so clear about that. It's through Jesus the Son. But there are many paths to Jesus. There's only one way to get to God, through Christ. But, but thank God, He, the Holy Spirit, dreams up so many ways to get to Jesus, to bring people uh, what's the, the Rascal Flat song? God bless the, the, the winding road that brought me straight to you. You know, he's able to create in people's lives this amazing journey. And I, I just want to say to you today that that neighbor that you may think has no interest in God or that family member that seems antagonistic to your faith or that coworker that seems to have it all together or that celebrity that, that just gives you the impression that faith is foolish... Never, ever doubt that God is on the job, and when you are prompted to pray for them or to speak, do it in faith that the God of heaven is, is more capable than you know of revealing himself miraculously even to the most distant person. And, and that, that ought to encourage those of us here today that might have uh, unbelieving children that we have prayed for and and tried to encourage and reach and see them embrace Christ and they still haven't. And, and maybe they're, they're gone kind of out of your life and you're wondering what, what's ever going to happen. I just want to tell you, God has other people on the job. Never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit as you pray for them and continue to believe for them that he can draw people around them. And, uh, and we believe that. We believe that. And so even though Jesus is the only way to God, uh, there are so many ways that people find themselves coming to Jesus, and we take joy in that today. The second thing that I think is amazing is those who have the truth placed in their laps are often too preoccupied to genuinely seek for themselves. I mean, this, is just, this, this just jumps out of this story. The, the scribes and Pharisees, they had the answer to that question so fast, but they, they missed it. And this is a persistent theme in the Gospels. The religious people who could have, should have known, they were skeptical or disinterested or preoccupied. I was thinking that's just like us. It's just like us. If we're not skeptical, then maybe we're disinterested. And if we're not disinterested, man, are we preoccupied. And I'm talking about us. Me, we, the Moncton Wesleyan. Because when you, when you really measure the amount of real seeking we do, it's not a pretty picture really sometimes. I mean, I know we're here this morning. I'm preaching to the choir, I know that. But yet again, maybe, that, maybe being here isn't that much of a reflection of the level or the urgency of our seeking 
I think you'd have to agree, we really see a lot more of the scribes and Pharisees in our life than we do the, the wise guys. I mean, we're more, we're more apt to be seen under the view of having the truth right under our nose, but being disinterested or preoccupied. We have this semblance of religious respectability, but we're pretty passionless about Christ. I, w- I wrote this down. We like a good fight about doctrine or tradition, but our hearts are pretty cold and our minds are in neutral when it comes to pursuing him. So, I mean, don't give me this blank stare. This, this is true of us people. Like, we, this is where we live. We've had so much exposure to great truth and good programs, but we yawn like somebody on their 50th trip through Disney World. I mean, we just, the, we just miss the magic. And it's a big problem. Willow Creek did a big, massive study, a big church that we, churches like Moncton Wesleyan, we tend to kind of follow them, sort of. They kind of break ground for the rest of us. And they did this big study of, of what was going on in their people's lives. And they found out that all the new people at Willow Creek were just so energized about life there and the ministry and the program. But when they started doing questionnaires for the lifers and the people that have been around a long time, they, they found out that most of them were bored, disinterested, and a bunch of them were thinking about leaving. So it's true. We can be cold-hearted people sitting right by the fire. It's where, where we can get to. Like, it's like starving bakers. We're, we're baking bread and preparing the bread. We're right, we live right in the bakery, but we're starving. We, have, we haven't taken time to consume ourselves, And I've been there, and, and so have you, and maybe you're here today, and you step back and look at yourself, and you, you might have to agree that shopping and coffee and conversation and sports and movies and politics and family and friends and so much more can overwhelm your attention. So it's not so much that you're abandoning Christ, but you can't be accused of really seeking him diligently. And Herod said that to the wise men. He said, go and seek diligently, search earnestly for the child. That's not bad advice, really. It's good advice to be a person who is a seeker after Jesus. I just was, you know, trying to think, what would a person, a person in Moncton, here in this place, who was a seeker after Jesus, what would they look like? And you could think of those answers as much as I can. I mean, a real, genuine, bona fide Christ follower would have things that were true about them. It's like that old saying, you remember, if being a follower of Jesus was a crime, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? You've heard that phrase before? Um, was it, it was Kenya, I think, this year where, they, where the mall shootings happened, the terrorists came in, and they were trying to shoot people who were not Muslim. And so they were pointing the gun in people's face and they were saying, are you a Muslim? And they were, but, the, but the answer, yes, I'm a Muslim, was not good enough for them. They said, they asked a question to confirm if they were a real Muslim. They, I think it was, do you know the name of Muhammad's mother or first wife or something like that? Why? Because they were wanting to find, they were wanting to spare the lives of the real bona fide followers of Islam. So what would a real, a diligent seeker of Christ look like? They would love God, certainly. There would be this love for God and for others. Forgiveness would make the list. They would would be people that knew that they were forgiven and they would be 
passing that same forgiveness on to people in their life who didn't deserve it. There would be joy evidenced in their life in good times and bad times, joy that could coexist with pain. There would be a thirst after God and after truth and after the word and after God's ways. They would be thirsty for God's people. There would be compassion for the hurting and for the lost and the lonely. And that's why Jesus spoke critically about us who had exposure to the truth but weren't changed. He used this illustration. He said, you are like people who look in a mirror and after looking in a mirror and seeing your reflection, you walk away and cannot remember what you looked like. And, and, and he said that speaking critically of people who, who had access to the truth but, but it was not affecting them. And then in verse 9, after they had heard the king, this is the wise men, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So here were these men miraculously guided to the Christ in, in a house, no less. And it says that they saw the young child, verse 11. So the nativity scene that we had out there kind of falls apart at this point. Maybe this is a year or two later. And they're giving these gifts that are stunning in their symbolism. I mean, they give, here he is, the king of kings and lord of lords, and they're giving him gifts, the gold for the king. And, and frankincense was, was an incense intimately connected with the priesthood and temple sacrifices. And here we know that Jesus Christ would serve as the high priest for us and give himself as the perfect sacrifice. And they gave to him myrrh, which was used to wrap uh, the body of a, of a dead person to cover the stench of death and, and even Jesus' own body would be wrapped in linen and, 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 and uh, myrrh and aloes. Foreshadowing these things. I heard Chuck Swindoll on Christian radio this week say, Christmas is all about Easter. And then verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled that the Lord, what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And Pastor Tim has been speaking about some of this stuff that, that, the, that the Christmas saga is so filled with with the fulfillment of, of prophecy. And there's, there's so much mystery. You know, the, the appearance of angels, the dreams. I mean, angels appearing to Mary and to Joseph and to Zechariah. And even here, here we, in this account, even these pagan astrologers are being guided by a dream from God. And in verse 13, Joseph is given a message to run for his life. I mean, there's a, you know, I don't know if you thought much about dreams. There's a difference between dreaming that you saw an angel and, or hearing from an angel in a dream. You know, I mean, Janet woke up the other morning. 
She said, you won't believe what I was just dreaming. She had this bizarre dream, had all these weird details. I don't remember any of that stuff, but she, she does. Anyway, a friend of ours, uh, she was standing there, and this person gets schmucked with a truck and flattened, you know. And That was pizza, friends. Like, that was, you know... Like, I'm not saying, that, I'm not saying that, that God isn't capable of speaking to us, but you, you can't, this, is, this whole issue is deep territory, and we have a guy here by the name of Joseph who had, was in the midst during this time in his life of being schooled by the Holy Spirit of what it means to be directed and spoken to directly by God in a dream with a visitation from an angel. And so this is what happened. And they, they sneak out of there in the middle of the night. And it's a happy ending, right? At least that's where the traditional reading of the Christmas story ends. Luke's Christmas story, you know, works perfect in the Christmas pageant. Matthew's not so much. And the next verses are a perfect illustration of that the, that the Bible is an honest book, man. There's no airbrushing. There's, this is just gritty, real truth about a conflict ready to erupt. Christmas really is all about Easter. And my last point this morning is this. Number three, Bethlehem reminds us that the Christmas story is not only a love story, but a war story. Because look what happens. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I mean, the implications of this story, this is troubling stuff when we think about what happened there. And it's, it's not only troubling because it was bloody, it's troubling because it appears also that God didn't try to save any of the children that Herod ordered to be killed other than one. I mean, God reached down and he spoke to one child's father and said, run for your life. So how does God allow this kind of suffering? I mean, think about how easy it would have been for God to have rewritten this story. He could have appeared to Herod in a dream and told him, do not kill these children. He could have guided the wise men so that Herod wouldn't feel mocked by them and didn't get so upset at them. He could have, God could have killed Herod. He could have protected the babies. He could have spoke to the, the soldiers and said, do not do this awful thing. He could have arranged that there were, that there were no male children born in Bethlehem at that time other than Jesus. He could have spoke to all the families and had them all run out and, and escape in the night. You can think of all these solutions, and yet God didn't do those things, and I don't have all the answers to that. In fact, I have, very, I have no answers. But I know this, that in war, there are no simple answers. And it seems that God has chosen or planned or permitted or maybe will that in war, innocent people are hurt. Somebody was talking to me about Coventry in England where they knew the German bombers were coming, but they couldn't warn the people because they discovered the enigma, the code. And, and if they had warned the people, that the Germans would have known that 
that they had, what they had discovered. And war is nasty at this point. And I, here's what I want you to hear this morning. Make no mistake about it. This is war. This was the God of heaven squaring off against the devil in what would prove to be the beginning of the final battle. And the prince of this world would stop at nothing to keep the words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believes in me will never die. He would stop at nothing to keep those words from coming true. And if you're, if you're new to the Christian faith, all of this kind of the saga part of this may seem a bit confusing to you. Janet and I went to The Hobbit the other night. And I mean, if, you, if you're not into The Hobbit, I mean, talk, don't, don't waste your time because it, it could be so confusing to you. You just kind of see all this stuff going on and you don't really know what is the significance of it. And, and, and I don't think Herod knew the significance of it. He didn't even understand the war that was going on. He didn't understand the, the war story. But he knew enough to know this, that there could be only one king of the Jews. And either Herod was going to sit on the throne or Jesus would sit on the throne. There was never going to be enough room for Herod and Jesus both. And maybe the, maybe the quickest and most troubling application of this story is this, that you and I all have a little bit of Herod in us. Herod's the guy who said, there is not room for me to be in charge and Jesus to be in charge. And this little nasty Herod that, that is in us, this sinful, selfish heart, I want to tell you, it will stoop to any depth just to get its way. It has a hard time getting off the throne and let Jesus take its rightful place. That little Herod, that nasty, sinful part of us, don't ever underestimate how, how nasty it can get. People will do some pretty rotten things to have their way in their life. See, you, you can't, and I can't, we can't rule over our own lives and have Jesus ruling over them too. It's one or the other. And you may think I'm just painting pictures here, but I'm not. Selfish agendas cause people to do some pretty rotten things. I mean, there are followers of Christ all over the world who blatantly ignore what the Bible says about a, a ton of things. Things like forgiveness and compassion and money and sex outside of marriage. And the list just goes on and on and on. And it's like we say to Jesus, you can be in charge of my life unless what you want to do and say infringes on an area that I'm currently picky about. And that's when I step in and say, Jesus, you're not in charge of that area anymore. I'll take over now and I'll do things my way. And for all his evil words, Herod's words are still the tweet of the chapter, still the best advice. He said to the wise men, go and seek diligently for the child. And my word to you this morning is, with all that you know and all you've been exposed to, is seeking diligently still a part of your walk of faith? Are you really doing that? Three things that are amazing. Amazing that God is capable of birthing a hunger for truth in people who have never been exposed to the message of Christ. It's amazing that those who have the truth placed in their laps are often too preoccupied to genuinely seek for themselves. And it's amazing that this quiet little Bethlehem reminds us that the Christmas story is not only a love story, it's a war story. 
And it is a war story. I mean, the stakes are high, higher than you think. Like, if, if you're losing, in, if you are losing your interest in your relationship with God and you think that that's no big deal, think again because it is a big deal. If you drift away from Him, the consequences are great. You might think you can deal loosely with giving in to temptation, that it doesn't really matter whether you forgive this person or, or it doesn't matter if you harbor hatred or sleep around or whatever because the truth is it does matter. It matters a lot. You might think that staying true to God and keeping a godly attitude or staying on fire for Christ is just way too hard these days. But just let me gently remind you, we are at war. And we fight an enemy who intends to damn yours and my soul and, and that our champion Jesus went all the way to the cross to make it possible to win. So my word to you this morning is, Hang, hang in there, hang tough and, and get back up and say no to apathy and distractions and sin and, and be the kind of person who seeks diligently Jesus every day that God gives you breath to breathe. Just pray that you become the kind of Christian who knows a good thing when you see it and stays focused and stays plugged into him. I want to end this morning with just three minutes of quiet reflection and I want uh, Guys, if you just leave those questions up there for us just to eyeball those questions and think about as you look at them, I'm going to go down and look at them too and just think about your life and your relationship with Christ. And uh, maybe you're here this morning, you, you don't even, haven't even established a relationship with Christ. You need to and you can in the same miraculous, mysterious way that some of this stuff unfold by just believing that the God in heaven is ready to hear your prayer of repentance and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, come into my life by, by calling upon Jesus and believing that he is the one who came born in a manger to hang upon a cross to pay the, pay the price for your sin and my sin. You can just embrace that and believe that today. Look at these three questions and, and just take three minutes of quiet reflection before you head back out this morning.